Tonight we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 49. If you have a Bible, we have a really, really cool study here. And I don't have a lot of notes because really these two chapters, they're pretty straightforward. They're pretty simple to understand. And I will say this, that they're all about Jesus. They're just all about Jesus. I remember when my kids were little, I would ask them, how is someone saved? When they, this is when they were little. Every night when they went to bed, I would just, just brainwash them with this. And they would say, you know, by faith alone, uh, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. They would say that. And then I would just ask them, well, give me the simple answer. And then they would say, Jesus. Jesus. You know, as a church, we have to make sure that we uh, remember Jesus. You know, I was reading today in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where Paul said, uh, No other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. But let him take heed how he builds on that foundation. How are you going to build on this foundation? The foundation that, believe it or not, we continue to build with Jesus. Jesus. A lot of times we forget him And yet there's power in the name of Jesus. There's power in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's not get sidetracked. Let's not forget who this is all about. Let's not forget who's the pastor of this church. Let's not forget the one who died on the cross for our sins. Let's not forget and let's not lose sight of the day that we will see Jesus. Man, because I'll tell you what, I think that what ends up happening a lot of times is we forget him and how much he loves us and what he's done for us, and that's what messes us up. Do you love him? Honestly, be honest. Do you love Jesus? You know, he he said, as often as you get together and you're having communion together, do you have communion? The reason he wants you to have communion at your house or in your Bible studies, wherever you're at, is because he realizes that life is so busy, and you know it. We're so busy that we forget Jesus. And we could even go to church service and you're a study and go the whole thing and you never is the name of Jesus even really mentioned. And so for us, we have to make sure we don't forget. These two chapters are really cool because it's all about the servant Jesus. And it's really cool. There's actually 12 prophecies of Jesus in these two chapters. Here we see him as our servant, the servant And we're going to see that he loves us so much that we are inscribed on the palms of his hands. And so look at what it says in verse 1. He says, Listen, O coastlands, to me, and take heed, you peoples, from afar. Now, how many of you guys have New King James? I'm just curious. How many of you have New King James? So the word me is capitalized, right? And so that means that this is God who's talking. In this case, it's, it's Jesus. So he's saying, listen, O coastlands. And so he's telling the coastlands, that would be like people who are far away in in islands, distant places, really to the ends of the earth. Listen, O coastlands, to me. Take heed, you peoples from afar. The Lord has called me from the womb, from the matrix of my mother. He has made mention of my name, and he has made my mouth like a sharp sword in the shadow of his hand. He has hidden me and made me a polished shaft. Now, this is Isaiah writing 700 years before Christ. And we're going to see it's prophecy after prophecy after prophecy about Jesus. Here, he mentions the fact that he wants the whole world to listen 
Regarding this prophecy, how the father had called him from the womb. Right here, he uses the word matrix. And matrix is describing an environment in which something develops. And so that's Jesus within the womb. And you guys know this. That's how the Lord was conceived in the womb of Mary, the Bible says in the Gospel of Luke. And so the Father, the Holy Spirit, Jesus, it's amazing to see the way the incarnation took place. And so there in the matrix, um, it says he has made mention of my name. Now, when you read the scriptures, you can go to Isaiah 7.14, where it says he's called Emmanuel. You can go to Isaiah 9.6, where he's called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. You can go to Matthew 121. That's probably the one he's probably referring to most, where it says, and you shall call his name, what? Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And so right here, there's this prophecy regarding him and, you know, from the womb, uh, there he's conceived and, and there his name is mentioned. And, and, and we see in verse two, basically the common denominator in those three points is the fact that Jesus is a weapon. He's a weapon. That means there's a war going on. There's a war going on for your soul. Because there are people who used to sit in those seats and they're no longer sitting in those seats. There are people who used to preach from these pulpits who are no longer preaching from these pulpits. There is a war going on. Jesus right here is just so beautiful how the way he's described. And I mean, we see the sharp sword. We see um, the, the, the sharpened arrow and, and the way that he's the polished shaft there in the quiver of the father. And it's interesting the way that, you know, he describes Jesus right here. It says in verse 2, and he has made my mouth like a sharp sword. You know, in one sense, like I kind of saw it this way, we're providing weapons to Ukraine, right? And thank God for that. You know, and some will say, well, maybe too much and all that kind of stuff. But you know what? Think about what they're going through for a second. Where would they be if we were not providing them with these weapons that they need. Well, in one sense, the father provided the son with, with the sword, with the weapons that he would need. Because when the son, when Jesus came to earth, he emptied himself of his divine privileges. Although he never lost his deity, he emptied himself of those divine privileges and he acted like a man would. And so he was just filled with the Holy Spirit and the Father just sustained him. We're going to see as we go through our text today, the Father protected him. The Father gave him this ability to have the, the sword in his mouth. And what that means is that whatever Jesus spoke, that's how he fought. And it's just a really beautiful thing. We have so many scriptures. If you want to write down... For example, Revelation chapter 1 and verse 16, Revelation 2 verse 12, it talks about the the Lord who has this sword proceeding from his mouth. Revelation 19, 15, did you guys know this, that when Jesus comes back on the white horse, did you guys know that? He has a sword that comes out of his mouth and with it, he smites the earth. And so can you picture Jesus with a sword coming out of his mouth? Can you picture that? I mean, it, sounds, it seems kind of weird. I mean, how do you do it? Does he swing his head like that? No, you guys know exactly what that means. That means that all he has to do is speak it, right? That's all he has to do is speak it. 
and, and he will have the victory. He will smite the earth. Remember how the Lord made the world? In Genesis chapter 1, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Hebrew word is bara, meaning he created it from nothing. And then it says in verse 3, And then God said, Let there be light. That's how he spoke the universe into existence, by the power of his word. Well, we see the same thing described in Hebrews 11, verse 3. It says, By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. The worlds were framed by the word of God. Have you guys ever built a, a building or a house? And you remember how they do the framing? That's how usually they start it, right? And so you get a hammer and you get the, the wood and whatever you got the labors. Well, the way the Lord framed the universe or the multiverse, no, I'm just joking, the universe, the way that he framed everything is by the power of his word. That's how he did it. He spoke it into existence. And what we're finding is that as, as the Lord sits on the throne with that sword, with that as the arrow in the Father's hand, he's going to win the war for us. Today I was reading in my devotion Psalm 29. And if you read Psalm 29, uh, seven times it talks about his voice, his voice, his voice, his voice. It's like the thunder that splits the trees. It's like it's the voice that gives, that gives birth to the little deer. It's all because of the way that he speaks. And so here we see in our text, the Lord is just saying about Jesus, you know, there he is conceived within the womb of Mary, the name above all names. And man, the father has made him armed and as a weapon. And we need that. I wonder if I could talk to you guys tonight. I wonder if there's anyone here experiencing spiritual battles. I mean, is the enemy after you? Is the enemy coming against you? Is the enemy coming against your family? Is the enemy coming against our church? Yes, he is. And you're feeling it. And that's why we need Jesus. And we thank God for this weapon that we have. Look, it says right here in verse 3, And he said to me, You are my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Now, I have to admit, when I first read verse 3, because I, I, you know, you've heard this taught, you read commentaries, and at first I thought, well, maybe, is, are you sure the servant here is Jesus and not Israel? But, but what, because he says it right there, you are my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But, you know, you read it, and then what you find is that this is in reference to Jesus, who really, in one sense, was called Israel. It says in the complete Jewish study Bible, chapter 49 opens with the servant speaking. He was called Israel since he will bring Jacob or Yaakov back to God. He should be identified as the redeemer of Israel. The Messiah epitomizes the nation and fulfills its original purpose by being a light to the Gentiles. Why did God choose Israel? Why did he choose them? Because he had to choose someone to be a light to the rest of the world. It wasn't because they were the greatest. You read Ezekiel chapter 16. They were there dying in their blood. It wasn't them. It was God who chose them, but he chose them for a purpose. He wanted them to be a light to the rest of the world. Through them, the Messiah would come. Through them, the scriptures would come. They were supposed to be a witness to the rest of the world. But they didn't fulfill their purpose. Jesus 
in one sense, was Israel. The name means governed by God. Jesus would be a light to the world. Just as a quick side note, I want to ask you guys this. You know, think about this for a second. Israel failed. They failed in being a light to the lost. They got saved. They got the word. They got the prophets. They got the goodness and grace of God. And what did they do? They hoarded it to themselves. Let me ask you a question, church. I have to ask myself the same question. Are we hoarding it to ourselves? Are we becoming an in-reach? Do you ever reach out to the lost? Because that's our purpose. Yeah, God wants to save us, and God wants us to have a good time, and God wants us to be blessed. But please, ask yourself a question. When was the last time you actually reached out to someone? When was the last time you even prayed for someone to get saved? When the Lord starts working in your life, when he starts working, you get this burden for the lost. Here, here the Lord is identified as Israel for that, that reason. And we go on and he talks more and it's so clear that it's about Jesus. Look at verse 4. Then I said, I have, I've labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and in vain. Yet surely my just reward is with the Lord and my work with my God. Now, this is interesting. You know, this, there, we're going to see a couple of things here in the book of Isaiah that we didn't really see clearly in the Gospels about Jesus. And this is one of them. You know, because we look at the ministry of Christ and we think, oh, you know what, it was exactly, you know, like maybe he expected and... Um, but there's a part of him, because of his humanity, and it wasn't sinful, but there was a part of him that was kind of saying, man, there, you know, there's a whole bunch of people here that are listening to him teach, but there's only 12 of them that, that really are tracking, that are really listening, that, that I'll really be able to use. Maybe there's 70 out of you know, hundreds. And, and, and you look at his ministry, he ends up dying on a cross, he ends up suffering and lonely and hated and all that kind of stuff, misunderstood. And, and there might be a part, apparently there was a part of him that had that thought, it's in vain. It's in vain. You know, and, and, and so this is what he says, it, it's in vain. But he says right here, surely my just reward is with the Lord and my work with my God. You know, I, I want to make sure we don't lose focus that that's, this is about Jesus. But I also think there is application because sometimes we go through that. You know, we look at our life. What are we doing? We look at the ministry that we're involved in and we might think, we might get tempted to think, Lord, is it, is it making a difference? Are people really in love with you? Why do they come to church? Is it because their friends are here? Is it because it's close to home? Is it because it's a habit? Are people really here to seek you, God? Because if not, it's in vain. And you get these thoughts. And then this person that you think is so in love with God, and oh, they tell you their testimony, and they, they come up front, and they ask for prayer, and they're telling all these great things that God's doing in their life. Next thing you know, they're you know, in sexual sin. Next thing you know, you find out he's a wolf. And then here you are and you're thinking, man, Lord, is any of this making a difference? 
Or is it in vain? And then you realize what the Lord says right here. He says, hey, you know, we don't know how it's all going to end up here. Jeremiah didn't have a lot of converts. But listen, my reward is with the Lord. You keep doing what you're doing. You keep asking God to give you pure motives. You keep trying to be faithful to him in the word and prayer and obedience the best that you can. You leave the results to him. And one day you will be rewarded. As a matter of fact, I love that passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. It says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So keep doing it. That's what Paul says. Jesus apparently felt something like that. And so we read in verse 5, it says, And now the Lord says, Who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, so that Israel is gathered to him. For I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. Indeed, he says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation. How far? To the ends of the earth. You know, it's cool. I mean, I don't know how the Jews missed it. They thought that it was just them. They, some of them thought that the Gentiles were just created to fuel the fires of hell. Imagine that. They missed it. And here the, the Lord makes it so clear when he comes to Jesus. He says, not enough just that you're going to bring Israel back. Or we're going to see as we go through our study tonight that this is talking about the end, about the, the last of the last days, how eventually God is going to bring Israel back to him. But not just Israel, uh, the Gentiles as well. How many of you here are Gentiles? How many of you here are non-Jews? I'm just curious. So aren't you happy <laughs> that it included you, that it includes us? But this is what Jesus does. He, he brings us back to salvation. Look, it says in verse 7, Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, their Holy One, to him whom man despises, to him whom the nation abhors, to the servant of rulers. I mean, Jesus, think about it. He was, he was, the people looked down on him. Have you ever had someone look down on you? They think they're all bad and they're all haughty and they look down on you. They did that to Jesus. They despised him. Who knows? Some said he wasn't really a good-looking man. I don't know. But you know how people are so superficial sometimes, right? They despised him. And Jesus here was a servant to kings. So in the world of Caesar, in the world of Herod, in the, in the world of Pilate, you know, he was a servant to them. But look what it says. It says, but kings shall see and arise. One day they're going to stand at attention. Princes also shall worship. They're going to bow low. Because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, and he has chosen you. And I can't wait for that day when, you know, these people who call themselves king, you know, bow to the king. Thus says the Lord, it says in verse 8, In an acceptable time I have heard you, and the day of salvation I have helped you. I will preserve you and give you as a covenant to the people to restore the earth, 
to cause them to inherit the desolate heritages. And so the Lord here is it's interesting. If you take it in context, what the Lord is saying, what the Father is saying, is that he's going to help the Son. And then we don't really think about that too much because we know that Jesus is God the Son, and part of us thinks, well, he never really needed help. But remember, you've got to get your theology correct that he emptied himself of his divine privileges, and so he was dependent upon the Holy Spirit. And so in one sense, if you read the Gospel of Luke, it emphasizes his prayer life because he, he needed the Father's assistance. And this is what we see right here, that, that the Father in the nick of time, the Father in the right time, in the acceptable time, heard him, the, the Father delivered him, the Father helped him, preserved him, and gave Jesus as a covenant to the people. Ultimately, it speaks of, of how the Lord will then uh, you know, be the king in the millennial kingdom. And again, this is all about who? It's about who? Jesus. But there is also application to us. Because some of you guys are going through trials. And you're like, Lord, it's already been three days. Lord, it's already been three months. It's been three years. It's been a long time. And God says, you know what? Don't worry. In an acceptable time, your child is going to get on fire. In an acceptable time, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you my glory and you're going to see it. It's just so cool to know that it's all in his timing. You know, God would give the Son as a covenant to the people to restore the earth. And so one day we'll have the millennial kingdom. It's going to be really cool. And so in verse 9 it says that, that you may say to the prisoners, go forth. To those who are in darkness, show yourselves. They shall feed along the roads and their pastures shall be on all desolate heights. They shall neither hunger nor thirst, neither heat nor sun shall strike them. For he who has mercy on them will lead them. Even by the springs of water, he will guide them. I will make each of my mountains a road and my highways shall be elevated. You know, I think it's good for us every once in a while to think about the millennial kingdom or to think about heaven you know, when we're in heaven, um, it's going to be cool. The, the way that God is going to intimately guide us and lead us and the sun won't strike us in the sense that it won't be, you know, too hot. I mean, just the way that the Lord gives us this promise, how he's going to make a way, his highways are going to be just right. And even just verse 9, that, that, that he says, go forth to those who are in darkness, show yourselves. He's going to say to the prisoners, you're set free. You know, we get a glimpse of this now. Some of you guys used to be drug addicts, but when the Lord came into your life, he set you free from drugs and alcohol. You don't need it anymore. I mean, it's so, so cool how God sets us free. But ultimately, we're going to be there, and it's going to be beautiful. And so we read in verse 12, Surely these shall come from afar. Look, those from the north and the west, and these from the land of, of Sinim. Now, some say that's China. Some say it's Egypt. But again, the millennial kingdom, God's going to bring his people from all over the earth. It's going to be so cool. It says right here, Sing, O heavens, be joyful, O earth, and break out in singing, O mountains, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have mercy on his afflicted. Now, if you study the history of the Jews, 
you know they've gone through a lot. I mean, 1.2 million Jews died when, when the Romans surrounded Jerusalem in, in 70 AD. Six million Jews died in the Holocaust. I mean, you look at their history, and it has not been easy. For some of you here, it has not been easy for you. You know, some people, they have the Ozzy and Harriet life, whatever, you know, and it's like everything went well and they just, you know, it all lined up and it was just so great and they're healthy and mom and dad and kids and house and everything was all together and it was great. But so many have gone through so much. I'm talking to so many people who have been molested as children. I'm talking to so many people whose, whose dad wasn't there when they were growing up, having so many people who are going through physical trials, man. And I just, I mean, I know this one gal, she's on dialysis every single night of her life for eight hours. And she's a young lady who loves the Lord. And you look at these things and and right here, you know, you look at Israel but, but God is, says, listen, I'm going to have mercy on, on my afflicted. One day, you guys, one day we're going to understand a little bit. I think when we look at the other side of the tapestry, we're going to see how it all made sense. And it was all part of his plan. And you know what we're going to do? We're going to worship. We're going to worship. Because a lot of times what happens, look at verse 14 right here. It says, but Zion said, and that's another name for for Jerusalem, and they were kind of the ones that were centered, and they would be going through the Babylonian captivity and so much there. Uh, but, but Zion has said that the Lord has forsaken, deserted, abandoned me, and, and my Lord has forgotten me. Do you ever feel that way? You know, if you don't, praise God. Praise God. Maybe your life has been you know, pretty good, I guess you could say. But, but sometimes people, they, they don't wonder, like, I don't understand how I could be going through this. I feel like God has forsaken me. I feel like maybe God has, has forgotten me. That's what Zion was saying. But here in verse 15, the Lord says, Can a woman forget her nursing child and not have compassion on the son of her womb? And again, kind of going back to Mother's Day. Last Sunday, we celebrated Mother's Day. And there's nothing like the love, the love of a mom. I mean, every once in a while, you hear these weird stories because we live in such a fallen, perverted world. And there are some moms out there that do crazy things. But you guys know, if you're looking for any type of relationship on planet Earth that can epitomize what love really is, it's the love of a mom towards her children. And the Lord said, can a, can a nursing mom forget her kids? That would never... Well, maybe it might happen, but... It'll never happen. He says, surely they may forget, yet I will not forget you. And then he says, see, I have inscribed, engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are are continually before me. You know, I wish I could sit down with every person, not that anyone needs me, but I'm, I'm curious. I don't want to get the juicy juicy, but I am curious, like, what are you going through? What are you struggling with? What's your issue that you somehow believe 
that God is not aware of your situation. To where you feel like God's not showing up. Like God's not really, you know, fair. And and right here, that's where they were. If you feel that way, that's how they felt. Lord, you've forsaken me. Lord, you've forgotten me. And the Lord said this, I, I, I have not forsaken you. I cannot forget you. I want you to know that your name is on the palms of my hands. The same hands that were nailed to a cross. Because I love you so much. And you need to trust me. You need to trust me. You know, and the palms of my hands, and I was just thinking about this, you know, I don't know, not to sound weird or anything, but have you ever written anything on the palms of your hands? Have you guys ever written anything there? Or maybe you, you met a girl and, you, you know, she said, hey, I want to give you your phone number, and so she wrote her phone number there on your hand or whatever. I know there have been a few times where I've come up here, because I, 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 I forget, you can ask anyone, I forget things. And so I have to write it literally on my hand because uh, otherwise I'll forget. And this is what the Lord is saying right here. I will never, ever forget you. Please. I feel like God is just like begging. Don't think that. Don't think that. I mean, Israel went through so much and they were thinking that. He says, no, I have... Your, your name inscribed on the palms of my hands. God would do a work in Israel. And so, of course, it took a long time. And sure, they would have wanted it to happen earlier. And of course, they probably wouldn't have wanted to go through the, the pain that they went through. But when it was all said and done, eventually, when God did what he's going to do, he's going to restore Israel to him, then there would be the celebration. He says in verse 17, your son shall, shall make haste. Your destroyers and those who laid you waste shall go away from you. Now this would be the the nations that conquered uh, Israel, whether it be the Assyrians or the Babylonians or whoever it might be, you know, one day. Um, but, But for me, you know what it is? Demons. Demons. Those demons who are lying to you. They're lying to you every single day. They're lying to you and you're believing the lie. And God said to Israel, one day all the sons are going to come back to the land and those destroyers, those demons, those enemies of yours, those ones that are lying to you, I'm going to judge them. That's what God is saying right here. He says, lift up your eyes in verse 18. Look around and see all these gathered together and come to you. You know, what a great day that's going to be when Israel's restored and they worship the Lord. As I live, says the Lord, you shall surely clothe yourselves with them all as an ornament and bind them on you as a bride does. Imagine the day when all your, you know, Israel and Jews and the, the, the believers are, are gathered together. What a glorious day that would be. For, for your waste, he says in verse 19, and, desolation, and desolate places and the land of your destruction will even now be too small for the inhabitants. It's going to be like cramped, you know, for those trying to live in it and those who swallowed you up will be far away. Now, just in case you didn't know, Israel today is only about 10% of the promised land. 
And so during the millennial kingdom, they're going to be all the way over to the Euphrates River. I mean, it's going to be huge because it's too small right now to hold all the people that will eventually be there. And what's, what is God saying? God is saying to you, believer, to you, Christian, he's saying, one day I am going to show up and I am going to blow your mind in such an amazing way that it's almost like there won't be enough room to hold all the blessings that I have in store for you. But I will say this, I will say this, although God will never forget us, there are some times where we forget him. Don't be one of those. You got to hold on to these promises and say, okay, Lord, you said that you're going to show up and you're going to blow my mind. And so you know what? I'm going to serve you. And I'm going to trust you. That, that's what we have to come away with as we're reading these things. In verse 20, it says, The children you will have after you have lost the others will say again in your ears, The, the place is too small for me. Give me a place where I, I may dwell. And, and then you will say in your heart, Where did they come from? Who has begotten these for me? Since I have lost my children and I'm desolate, a captive and wandering to and fro. And who has brought these up? There I was, left alone. But, but these, where were they? Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will lift my hand in an oath to the nations and set up my standard for the peoples. They shall bring your sons in their arms and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Kings shall be your foster fathers and their queens your nursing mothers. In other words, kings and queens would serve them, they shall bow down to you with their faces to the earth and lick up the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord, for they shall not be ashamed or disappointed who wait for me. You know, and there's so many times where we could not wait for God. I mean, you name it, man. I mean, it could be like Moses who went ahead of the Lord. He didn't wait on the Lord. He ended up killing a man. He ended up in the you know, desert for 40 years. And of course, God still used it, but you know, we have to wait on the Lord. It could be that girl who was supposed to wait for a guy, but she couldn't wait. And so she found this other guy who's good looking and he's got money and a nice job, but he doesn't know the Lord. She didn't wait on the Lord. I mean, there's story after story of us not waiting. Isaiah 40, it says, those who wait on the Lord shall mount up with wings like, with wings like the eagles. You know, they shall fly, they shall run, they shall walk. Trust God. Don't do things the way the world does them. Don't do things the way your flesh wants you to. Do things according to the word of God. You know, you wait on the Lord. It's just so crazy to me. It's just insane to me that we're having this whole issue about abortion. And these people who feel like they're so moral, we are so moral. We are upright citizens because we are fighting for the right of a woman over her own body. And so if, I, if she gets pregnant, then she should have the right to take that life because it's my body. Well, well, if you don't want to get pregnant, you know, there's ways not to get pregnant, if you know what I mean. Not only that, this is a life. 
This is a life, the moment of conception. But they don't want to wait on the Lord. Sometimes even Christians don't wait on the Lord. You know, and they have sexual relations before they get married. We have to be so careful. We have to wait on the Lord. We have to believe in Him. We have to hope in Him. You know, it's interesting how it says, kings and queens shall serve you and, and then he's talking about them you know, being used to bring the people back to the land. We saw glimpses of that in Nehemiah's time. In Nehemiah's time, the kings not only provided for them, but they protected them. So God is just saying, basically, I'm going to blow your minds in the way that I answer your, your prayer requests. And so it says in verse 24, Surely the, the, pray, the, the pray be taken from them. Shall the pray be taken from the mighty or the captives of the righteous be delivered? It seems like it can't happen. How can you take the prey from the mighty? You know, it's like it's impossible. But it says in verse 25, thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken away and the prey of the terrible be delivered. Here it is. For I will contend with him who contends with you and I will save your children. And, and you know, of course, we know we're talking about Israel right here and we're talking about the descendants of Abraham. But man, I can't help but take that as a promise to parents. And as you're trying to serve the Lord and it's a fight going on and God says, listen, I'm going to fight. I'm going to fight those who fight against you. And I'm going to take care of your kids. I will feed those who oppress you with their own flesh and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with sweet wine. All flesh shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. And so verse uh, 1 of chapter 50, it's a shorter chapter, but, but basically, we guys, it, real quick, what he's saying is like, this is what I have for you in the future. It is so good, it is so glorious, it's so amazing. You know, I, I've been a Christian now for 36 years. How long? 33 years, 34 years. I've been a Christian for over three decades, okay? <laughs> and all I can tell you, man, is that God is awesome. God is awesome. Serve him. Serve him. Watch what he does. You know, that's what he's saying right here. This is future for you, and I know you're going to go through hard times, but you keep doing the right thing, and, you know, you be obedient, and you have this intimate, personal relationship with God, and, and I, I have this future for you, and it's, it's going to be amazing. I mean, for me, I mean, you know, we don't know if we have tomorrow or next week, but whatever, we, we do know that when we die, we go to heaven. I mean, it's just amazing. And so he says, in light of this amazing future, Here's some things I want you to think about. Verse 1 of chapter 50. Thus says the Lord, Where is the certificate of your mother's divorce, whom I have put away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? For your iniquities you have sold yourselves, and for your transgressions or crimes your mother has been put away. Why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there none to answer? Is my hand shortened at all that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? 
most people believe that what's going on right here in chapter 50 is God is basically saying to the children, you know, that, that the reason for the divorce, the, the reason that they're out there, these people are out there, is because of their sin. It's their sin. It, it wasn't that the father, you know, you know, initiated the divorce against Israel for no reason. Is because Israel was faithful. They were unfaithful over and over and over again. To where in one sense, you know, you read Jeremiah chapter 3, you know, they had to get a divorce. But God is going to redeem them back to him. It's a really interesting thing. He's basically saying the reason for the divorce and the reason that you're sold out there as slaves is because of your sin. And so he's telling the children to think about what their ancestors did and he's telling the children, don't do the same thing. And I will say this, that a lot of times in families there's a cycle and they just keep doing the same thing over and over and over again. And it's almost like a generational curse. So it's not a curse because we know it's just basically a cycle that we see our parents do and then we end up doing and then their kids end up doing and they end up doing. And it's something that only the, only the power of the Holy Spirit, only Jesus Christ can break. And so he's saying, look at, this is why they got it. This is why there was a divorce. This is why... They were sold as because of their sins. It wasn't that I couldn't help. We're going to see it again later in Isaiah 59. He says, I, I can help. As a matter of fact, look what he says in chapter, verse 2b. Indeed, with my rebuke, I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a wilderness. Their fish stink because there is no water and they die of thirst. In other words, he's able to part the sea to the point that those fish are living there in the dirt. They got no water. God is able to help anyone. You can't sit there and say, well, the reason why I'm separated from God or the reason why I'm a slave of this sin is because of him, because he didn't help me. No, he can help you. When he calls, you have to answer. And so he, I can do anything, and he can. That's what he's saying right here. The Lord has given me, verse 4, not only the miracles, but the message. I love this, the tongue of the learned that I should know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as the learned. And so as we close today, um, please, let's pay attention to these last few verses because they're very important. You're here today and you're wondering, how is Jesus going to help me? How is Jesus really going to help me? And you know what Jesus says right here? It's interesting. He says, I wake up and I spend time with my father and he gives me the right words to say to you. When you're weary and you're struggling and you're going through your difficulties. Now, of course, we know this was Jesus in his human ministry, and he would spend time with the Father. That's why I always encourage you guys, spend time with the Lord in the morning. Hear his voice. Spend time with him. Maybe you're not a morning person, but maybe it'll be evening, but there's something about that special time with the Father, and he gives you the word to share with others. But in this case, this is Jesus saying that I received the word to give to you. And it's just so beautiful 
how, how he'll, he'll be there for you. He'll speak just the right word. Let me tell you guys something. When I read my Bible in the morning, and I've been a pastor or whatever for a long time, Christian for a long time, I go in there. It's not automatic. I go in there every single morning. I say, Lord, give me something personal. I don't want to just do doctrinal stuff. I don't want to just say, well, I read my four chapters today. No, there has to be something that is personal, something from you to me. And I do that every single morning of my life. And it doesn't matter if I'm teaching from a text on Sunday morning or Thursday. I have my personal devotions with God. And I will not leave that place until I have received something from him. This is how Jesus helps us. He will give us the right word in, in the right season. But not only that, you want to know how he, he really helps us? He died for us. He suffered for us. Look what it says in verse 5. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. Let me ask you a question. If someone spit on your face, if someone spit on your face, wouldn't you like do something like that? They're pulling out your beard. Now, in the Jewish culture, the beard was a sign of respect and dignity. So when they're pulling out the hairs of his beard, they're showing contempt for him. But there he is taking it all in because he was volitionally laying down his life for us. Right there where it says he opened my ear, it's interesting because there's two uh, views. One is that Jesus would just listen to the Father. Okay, this is what I want you to do. But most people believe that what that's talking about is when they would pierce the ear of the bondservant. And basically you read Exodus chapter 21 and it says when the Jewish guy has served his time and now he can go free, but he says, no, I don't want to go free. I just want to do the will of my master. They would take his ear and they would pierce it. And what that's in reference to is now he's a bondservant of this individual who would only do, listen to what his master says. And in this case, Jesus is there. He says, okay, Father, what do you want me to do today? You know, should we go to the movies? What do you want to do today, Lord? You want to have a good meal? What do you want me to do today? Or whatever. And the Lord says, the Father says, I want you to die. I want you to die the death of the cross. And I want you to be flogged. And some say it was 39 flogs, but that's the Jewish way of doing it. The Romans didn't do it like that. The Romans would flog their man until they got their confession. But there was nothing for Jesus to confess. So how can Jesus help us? Is this personal message, but of course, ultimately, we know he helps us because he died for us. And this is what we read right here. And he didn't just... Do it, you know, with, you know, half-heartedness. It says in verse 7, For the Lord God will help me, therefore I will not be disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint. 
and I know that I will not be ashamed. He was determined to do the will of the Father. And so in verse 8, he is near who justifies me. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near me. Now this is again in reference to Jesus, but I think in many ways it can be you know, applicable to us now because he's going to go on. He's going to ask this question five times. You know, who who can stop us? Who can come against us? And that reminds me of Romans chapter 8. Who, who's going to bring a charge against the God's elect? No, it's not going to, well, I'm not going to be defeated. Jesus is saying here, I'm not going to be defeated. Verse 9, surely the Lord God will help me. Who is he who will condemn me? Indeed, they will all grow old like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Who among you fears the Lord? Who obeys the voice of his servant? Who walks in darkness and has no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely upon his God. Now, verse 10 is a positive. That's what we need to do. You guys, are you willing to do that? How many of you here, you don't have to raise your hand, but you're like, yes, Lord, I would trust you. Can you make that commitment today? Lord, I will trust you, even when I don't understand. Even when I feel like right here, I'm going through darkness. and I don't see your plan. I will trust you. That's what he says right here. Let him trust in the name of the Lord. Rely upon his God. Because look at verse 11. It's the flip side. It says, look all you who kindle a fire, who encircle yourselves with sparks, who walk in the light of your fire and in the sparks you have kindled. Check this out. This you shall have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. And what's the Lord saying right there? You know, you got the saints and the ain'ts. Whatever you do, if you're here tonight and you hear this message, don't say you were not warned about hell. Because that torment that he's talking about right there, it's all about hell. And you can read it right here. These guys are walking in their own light. It's the modern moralist, right? And, you know, it's that individual. Today we see this crazy world that we're living. They think they're good when in all reality they're the opposite. You know, God is saying, if that's you and you don't humble yourself to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then what you're going to find yourselves in is in torment. And you guys, we don't have time, but you read... You know, um, Matthew eight twenty nine or Luke 16, 23 through 28. And you're going to see the rich man there is talking about how he wished someone could go back from the dead and tell his brothers about this place of torment. And so, now the Lord is God, huh? I, I, none of you guys are God, right? As far as I know. He's God. Today, I'll close with this funny uh, t-shirt that I saw uh, this morning when I was out with my wife is a t-shirt this little kid was wearing. I think we have the picture right here. Rule number one, I make the rules. Have you guys ever seen that t-shirt? Little kid was wearing that t-shirt. Rule number one, I make the rules. Who's the only one who could wear that t-shirt? Only the Lord, huh? He makes the rules. He tells us. He made a way. Jesus is the way. Let's trust him. Let's make sure we don't try to do this on our own light, our own morality. You know, he said, hey, uh, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me.